Um, so fasten your seatbelts, audience, because welcome to the transition from the land of where we kind of know what we're doing to the land where we don't. And um, you will emerge from this knowing that MRD and AML is important. Um, and then we'll see what else we can add to that. Because unfortunately, um, the, uh, the status of MRD in AML is very, very challenging and quite unclear. And I'm going backwards, I think. Okay. These are my disclosures. So there's a lot going on at ASH this year. You're hearing about changing paradigms in AML. You're hearing about changes in the AML landscape. We have a lot of approved drugs. There's incredible enthusiasm and excitement about AML um, at this meeting and the last couple that has been very, very different from the last uh, 20 years. And depending on if you're a half full or a half empty kind of person, if you look at the 2019 AML statistics, these are from SEER. Okay, so we're looking at 21,000 cases in 2019. Um, it's still, it's, it's a rare disease. Those of us who treat it don't feel like it's rare on our service. But overall, we are still looking at um, something that is not common. Yet, this is the most common acute leukemia in adults, and it is still a very bad disease. So I wear two hats, because on the one hand, at this meeting, I'm extremely excited about many novel therapies, many new combinations, many things that absolutely definitely look better. But this number is still not where we want to be. 28% at five years overall is quite dismal. What we're hoping actually is that things are getting better now, not only because improvements um, in supportive care, which used to be the case, meeting after meeting, we would say that AML is getting better because of antifungals and because we know how to transfuse people. Now there are actually therapies that look better, but to use the pharma speak, this is a uh, tremendous unmet need. So what is the problem, though, with all of this enthusiasm and changing paradigms and changing landscapes? Why aren't we curing more patients? So you've hear, heard this and seen this in different ways in the other um, two talks, but let's drill into this right now for AML. So here's AML. Now you'll notice here, and my picture is a little bit different from the, the style that Prashant had used. So AML is not just a bunch of blue blasts under the microscope, right? There, are, some of these are red, some of these are dark red. So what's different here? Are there leukemic stem cells? Are there mixed populations of leukemia cells right out of the gate? And do they have differential sensitivity to chemotherapy or other therapies? We know there are leftovers, right? This entire three or four hour session is on the leftovers. You have disease, you have leftovers. But what if the cells that are left over aren't all the same? Or what if while this arrow is happening, they change? What if you have a bunch of mutations here that are not actually the bunch of mutations that are left over? Welcome to AML. So when you're thinking about, for example, tracking newly diagnosed patients through remission and then through relapse, it's actually an incredible moving target because you might, in fact, be able to follow a leukemia-associated immunophenotype or even a mutational profile from here to here. But it could also change on you. What if you have different phenotypes, either immunophenotypically or mutationally, that come up at relapse? The other thing to note here is that, okay, so this clump is bigger than this clump, but what is the problem with the therapy? Is it a failure to kill cells? Are they fundamentally not sensitive to the therapy that you've used initially? Or could this just be 
a, a quantity problem that maybe you didn't give enough of your initial therapy. And AML doctors struggle with this a lot, and I'll show a little bit of the, the data even at ASH this year, that, well, how, how much are you going to flog this group of cells? How much chemo are you going to give? 18 grams of ERASI, 500 grams of ERASI. When do you know that you can get rid of this with more of the same treatment, and when do you have to switch to another one? So again, having leftovers doesn't mean you know what to do about it. This paper, um, which was referenced a number of times, is the consensus document from the ELN on um, minimal slash measurable residual disease, and I am certainly someone who is a major proponent of calling this measurable, because minimal sounds unimportant and that it can be blown off, and that is not the case. Um, this is a fantastic um, group here. I had the pleasure of being included in this group, and I can tell you, having sat in the room for a couple of years working on this, it's hard. This was hard to put together. And basically, the idea was to start somewhere, to have some guidelines not down to 10 to the minus 23, but just to level set a little bit of what are the basic requirements to even start having a conversation, both in clinical practice and in, in trials, about MRD and AML. I've been asked already 20 times at this meeting, which hasn't even started yet, about when the next incarnation of this document is going to be. We're working on it. It's coming. I'm hoping not to be in a nursing home by the time it comes out. We are thinking it's going to be reasonably soon because, as you'll see in a moment, there are many refinements that are needed. So you've already heard about this, that there's a new uh, response category that was um, identified in this document called uh, an MRD negative or a complete remission without minimal residual disease. But it actually comes as a rather unpleasant surprise to me that, for example, many hematopathology colleagues don't know anything about this. And depending on where you work and the practice, it is completely reasonable at a hospital or a center that they may not see that much AML. And doctors don't necessarily know about this document. They don't necessarily know about this category. And clinicians are getting fr very frustrated that they are not getting back reports that actually says in AML whether the patient is MRD negative or not. They're getting back reports which have about 30 lines in them that say things like cannot rule out residual population of, which drives us all crazy because we don't actually know what that means. Are you MRD negative or not. So what are the summary of these recommendations that you actually need to know? So first of all, actually, and this is a, this is a controversial point, which is why we stated it in the document, MRD monitoring should be considered standard of care in AML. This gets a lot of fire and attention, and there are lots of people who will say, well, why? You can't do anything about it. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're measuring. How can this be standard? I can't get these tests. We get that. But the problem is that if it is not even stated as being considered standard, then there's no way to raise the level of play among our um, pathology colleagues as well as eventually for potential regulatory approval of how are you going to get MRD included in your reports. MRD should be assessed before and after transplant. I'm not saying well, when, a month before, the day before, it depends, but there is certainly tremendous data from a prognostic perspective that if you are detectable going into an allotransplant and if you are detectable afterwards by any methodology, you at least should be considering monitoring the patient carefully and doing something different, preferably in the context of a trial. 
For flow cytometry patients, we are not used to dissecting these reports, but you've got to know what your sample actually showed. And if your initial report is coming back saying things like partially crushed, aspirated, shaken and not stirred sample, if it's using all of that language that indicates that it's a lousy sample, be very careful interpreting MRD. Here, you want to use also a cutoff of 0.1%. This comes as an enormous surprise to clinicians because they're getting back reports that say normal blood counts, the blast count is 3%, they can de detect a minute population of 0.3%. Yeah, that doesn't sound so bad. That's bad. That is actually probably a patient who is going to die of this disease. And I think just that statement alone, even though we all know that there are many, many um, posters and abstracts, even at this meeting, going down to 10 to the minus 5, just getting that 0.1% on the map as a cutoff was a big deal. Now here, there are certain patients, not all, but certain patients with AML who have molecularly defined disease. NPM1, um, the core binding factor, leukemias, um, APL. These are patients who need to have molecular assessments of disease, and the current standard of care is PCR. Here again, I think the audience may be surprised. NPM1 is a mutation. Shouldn't they be following next generation sequencing? No, you're following PCR, and I'll talk to you about that um, as we go forward. But I think here, too, as many of um, our colleagues in practice who are treating lots of different things, you have these huge reports from the lab, these huge sheets of boxes that you can check off. It's becoming actually quite difficult to figure out which boxes to check when you're following an AML patient. If you have a molecularly defined disease with a PCRable lesion, this is what is standard of care. Monitoring beyond two years of follow-up, we don't really know what to do. Two years is a high-class problem in AML. We don't have that many patients who are getting to two years. We're usually so excited about that that we just, we're not necessarily monitoring anything. But here, too, we may have opportunities now that are different for salvage therapies or potential interventions, controversial whether or not to monitor, not giving you um, specific advice. Now here, in purple, and this especially for transplant colleagues, this makes us crazy, because do not, do not use single mutations FLT3, NRAS, KRAS, DNMT3, especially the DTA mutations, even IDH, these as single markers should not be used as an individual MRD marker. And this is really hard because what starts happening is you get back the report, you have 50 patients waiting in clinic, and you say, oh, he's got a leftover Yabadabid mutations. That's bad. The therapy didn't work. They need a transplant. No, no, no. Don't do that because it is not the case that every mutation means your therapy didn't work. It's not the case that it's bad news. IDH, for example, can be monitored via PCR. This is complicated, and the concern is that what we don't want to do is have all of these technologies, which we can stipulate to it, will always detect something or other, mean that therapy didn't work and the patient has to go for an allo transplant, because that is actually often the wrong answer to the question. All right, so is this patient in remission? 55-year-old with FLT3-ITD and an NPM1 mutation is treated with cytarabine and donorubicin combined with mitostorin. That would be the standard of care treatment for this patient. At the end of treatment, the bone marrow aspirate shows 2% blast. The CBC is normal. She's really excited. Standard morphologic CR, bone marrow blast less than five. Yep, check, we've got that. Absence of circulating blast, she doesn't have that. No extramedullary disease, ANC of over 1,000. Yep, she's got that. Platelet counts, are we good to go? 
well, what are you going to look for? Are you looking for a FLIP3? Are you looking for an NPM1? How are you measuring that? When are you looking for it? And we're going to get back to this lady because we have some case discussion about her. Okay, so let's talk about the data that we do know. If you look at studies of multi-parameter flow cytometry, and these can use lots of different colors, but basically it's highly prognostic. This doesn't tell you what to do about the problem. It just says that if you're looking at relapse-free survival and if you're looking at overall survival, pretty much every single study without exception, and you don't have to see these are small, but you know what they look like. If you're MRD positive, it looks worse than if you're MRD negative. Your relapse-free survival, whether you're looking at relapse-free survival or overall survival. Flow cytometry in AML is much more challenging than in ALL, okay? This number and the reason why the meta-analysis worked so well in ALL and the reason why we have an approved therapy that is based on a well-defined um, cutoff level, which is prognostic for um, and predictive of overall survival, is because there were very, very consistent time points of measurement and very consistent flow cytometry over multiple studies. We don't have that in AML. AML yet. So we cannot use flow cytometry MRD as a surrogate endpoint for AML because we don't know exactly what this cutoff is, A, and B, there's a lot of um, phenotypic shift that happens in AML that is different from in ALL. So this is not the same thing as what Aaron said just for a different disease. It's not the same. It's clearly prognostic in no matter which studies you look at. Now looking over here at PCR-based MRD for mutant NPM1, okay? So usually people... I don't know why that went away. Let me try that again. There was a box here. I'm not sure if we can get that up. At any rate, usually people look at things that are in the New England Journal. So if you have a patient with an NPM1 mutation, never mind if the patient has other mutations for the moment, if the patient has an NPM1 mutation, that patient can be followed using a PCR-based assay after consolidation in, by the way, the peripheral blood, never mind the hour that we could spend discussing whether we're doing all of this in peripheral blood or bone marrow. For right now, the sensitivity of MRD testing for any disease is clearly higher in bone marrow, but that doesn't mean that you always have to do it in bone marrow. And here in NPM1, we actually have data for monitoring post-remission um, uh, post in consolidation. Clearly, if you are MRD negative by PCR, you're better, but, but importantly, if you detect, so first of all, you have to call your lab and find out, is your test binary? Is it plus minus, yes detectable, no not detectable, or are you getting back a quantitative result? And furthermore, if you are one cycle, if you're just after induction or if you're one cycle of consolidation in and you are detectable, does that mean your treatment didn't work? Does that mean you're taking an ELN favorable uh, patient and transplanting them? No, it doesn't. And this is why AML is tricky because what you might actually have in that patient is somebody who has a falling level of disease molec uh, measured molecularly, who might actually be okay. You're going to have to check it again. It's also a challenge. It is available, and I can't speak for the whole world here because I know things are different in Europe and um, and in Asia, but you can get PCR-based um, NPM1 monitoring, but people don't necessarily know to do that. They look at NPM1 and they're getting trying to get a repeat next generation sequencing test. Not the same. This is looking at PCR. So here too, oh, the box came back. So this just showed that after the adjustment for the status that it's a good thing to look at NPM1 by PCR. Okay. So if you look over here, um, 
looking at, uh, I think, let me just make sure, yeah. I don't know if I'm controlling these or the universe is, but I'm, okay. So this now is looking at core binding factors. So again, we're talking now molecularly defined diseases. So this is NPM1, now I'm switching to core binding factor. Core binding factor patients in version 16, 821, these are good prognosis patients, but not everybody does fine and lives forever. You do want to monitor them. This is PCR testing. You do want to check again, am I getting a quantitative result or a um, yes-no result? Here's the thing. We know that if you have your survival is worse if you have PCR-detectable disease. Well, we haven't proven yet, and I get challenged on this all the time, do we know for sure that it's important to monitor these patients because if you jump in early, can you do something better for the patient? Will they live longer if you jump in early? This is controversial. So in version 16 and A21 patients generally have very high salvage rates with intensive chemotherapy, generally, not always. So the question is, if you have a molecular relapse and if you repeat it and it's still there, you know that person is in fact going to... Um, to ultimately have a hematological relapse, if you jump in and do something early and treat early, well, I think many of us think that maybe that's better. Maybe the patient is less sick. Maybe the patient has a better chance of going into a smooth CR. But we can't prove that 100%. So my answer is yes, monitor. Yes, check, uh, check PCR. Yes, worry about it a lot if that PCR is going up because that patient is going to relapse. But can I absolutely prove to you that you're going to save their life by monitoring MRD? Probably can't. Okay, now we're way into the land of the lost, which is next generation sequencing. So here, if you look at detection of molecular MRD after AML induction, increased rates of relapse and decreased overall survival. I have to say, when this came out, I thought I was gonna have to disconnect my phone. So this had people crazy. These are patients 18 to 65, targeted sequencing at diagnosis and after induction, there was at least one mutation detected in 90% of these AML patients, and the mutations persisted in 50% of the patients during uh, complete remission. So first of all, just from a clinical perspective, right, this is pretty devastating conversations with patients, right? They get through induction, they're in remission. What, the, the initial comment that was made, Prashant said that you go from a trillion to a billion cells, that is not super comforting if you're a patient, that yay, I have a billion leukemia cells left over. Here, what you're showing, though, 50% of them had detectable disease. DTA mutations were not correlated with increased relapse rates. There are even patients, I mean, TP53 scares everybody. There are mutations that are scary, but you have to be careful because variant allele fraction matters. Not all mutations are the same. What if there's a mutation that pops up during the uh, remission sample that was not there during induction? So my, my take-home point is it absolutely matters and will matter to have have clonal and subclonal clearance, but do not operate under the assumption that just because somebody has a leftover detectable mutation, then that means they need an allotransplant, because that would be the wrong conclusion. It doesn't mean your therapy didn't work. It also is becoming very complicated to get, um, in the U.S., there are insurance issues, and across the world, they can't even get, in many countries, initial sequencing of the patient, even though there are therapies that are, are targeted, let alone subsequent ones, let alone potentially multiple subsequent ones. So I absolutely recognize that it is controversial at this moment in a non- um, 
research setting to follow this, but I also know that it's absolutely happening. And patients are getting mutational profiling panels after their induction. It shows something that's left over, and the patient's being told that their initial therapy was a failure. Okay, this um, shows that, again, I think it's really important to, uh, to consider multimodality MRD. And here the problem is that from a regulatory perspective and from a practical perspective. We all want there to be just one test, right? There's only so much information we can learn. It's too hard to remember all these different tests. What's the test and what's the result? And the problem is in AML, it still looks complementary it still looks like there are patients who are going to have different lesions who are going to be followed with PCR. And here, too, the discriminatory effect of using next-generation sequencing plus flow, which we've already seen also in ALL, although, you know, logs lower fold, it, it does seem to be complementary. So I, I think we do have to get our heads around it that there might be, in fact, multimodality assessments. And think about it also. What if you have a cytogenetically abnormal patient who has cytogenetics that are still abnormal after induction, right? Forget sequencing, forget flow. Just the cytogenetics alone are another way of monitoring certain patients with AML and underscore the fact that it might actually be the type of disease and the biology of the disease that governs the modality of MRD assessment and potentially the importance of MRD in the treatment of that patient. So, so what is the thing here? What, what do we have in AML? We have, a, you know, we have one hammer, right? That's a stem cell transplant. So usually the decision making in AML is, can I cure this patient with a stem cell transplant or not? Because that's been our modality for cure. So if the patient's MRD negative, does that mean that the patient needs a transplant? or doesn't need a transplant. And I think you heard provocative data from BLAST, from the BLIN study, that we we're actually thinking about it now, that for some of the ALL patients who are MRD negative, do they actually need a transplant? I, I know there are transplanters in the audience, but you know, transplant does hurt some people some of the time. There are toxicities that somehow never get mentioned, but it's not an easy therapy. It is difficult to go through a transplant. It is not perfect. It doesn't cure everybody. And if you're MRD negative, what are you asking the transplant to do if there's no level of detectable disease? And I think that this is going to be, um, this is going to be certainly a, a much more prominently important question right now in ALL because we have more data. Now here, if you look, again, meta-analyses are hard to come by of, um, of a, uh, MRD and AML. I'm actually authoring one currently, and it's tough because it's like buckshot trying to get the time points of assessment and the modalities of assessment and the cutoffs to line up. But here, this meta-analysis did show that MRT, uh, MRD positivity by flow and or PCR led to inferior transplant outcomes. Does that mean you don't do a stem cell transplant? Absolutely not. Stem cell transplant is still the curative modality for, for many of our patients with AML. But does it mean that we worry about it and think about it, and in the same way as with ALL, are we hoping to be able to do something about that with a drug? Yes. And what we need to understand better is I want to have for AML the same kind of cutoff level that not at 0.1%. We need to be getting down to the 0.01 to the point, you know, one times tenth to the minus third and fourth also. So here, our best treatment, right, allogeneic stem cell transplant, these are, you know, almost 400 patients. 
10 color flow, um, any residual disease was considered positive. Never mind cut off your, any residual disease was positive. And again, you don't need to have, um, you don't need to, to use binoculars to see the difference in the slides. If you had measurable uh, residual disease, it was worse. And actually, what, what I think is um, extra important here is that the, the um, poor outcomes are almost as bad in, in this particular study as bad as if you went into the transplant with active disease. And that's something that comes to, uh, as a surprise. Most people get it that if you go into a transplant with active disease, it's possibly a Hail Mary transplant. It's a young patient. We don't know what else to do. We go in. We can't get rid of their active disease. Going in MRD positive in some studies is as bad as that. It's active disease. So what are we going to do about all this? I put this up. This was recently published in Blood. This is an exciting piece of work. Um, from the Italian Leukemia Study Group. So what are we doing about this? MRD-directed therapy. So what happened here was basically in this trial, they were using MRD data to try to come up with a treatment algorithm. And in the United States, I will just say that randomization based on MRD data, so I was in a meeting just recently where um, it was said that, well, but the clinicians are sneaky. If they get the data, they're going to want to do something weird about trying to get rid of the MRD. They're not going to agree to be random. That's probably true. But if you look over here, the idea was they were using autologous stem cell transplant, which is not super popular in the U.S., but maybe will come back in popularity to say that if you are either ELN favorable or if you were MRD negative, you got an auto. And if you're MRD positive, you get an allo. And basically what they were able to show here was they were able to get the curves more superimposable in such a way that the MRD-positive patients actually benefited from aloe. Now, is this contradictory to what I was saying? So MRD-positive patients may do worse overall if they go into an aloe, but there is still a cure rate for those patients. And it is very possible that the intensity of the transplant matters with respect to um, combating whatever MR disease, uh, uh, minimal or measurable disease is left over. This study, which um, Chris Hergen presented at EHA, was very important because what lo was looked at here was the impact of conditioning intensity for allotransplant for AML with genomic evidence of residual disease. And this is taking, you know, the, a famous cooperative group study which looked at actually reduced intensity transplant versus um, myeloablative transplant. And basically here, the, 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 um, the kind of summary statement of the trial was everybody knew in this trial that the patients with reduced intensity transplants were having higher than expected relapse rates. That was why the trial was st stopped early, which was controversial, by the way. But the point was here that it is possible that having a more ablative transplant actually solves or at least helps this, to solve the problem to some extent of having residual disease. But wait a minute. This flips all of us upside down, right? Because we have a median age of this disease of 70 years old. We're trying to take patients in who are more frail, who are older. We're trying to push that age to 70, 80, to 95 if you live in New York. But I have to tell you that you're taking patients into a transplant, a reduced intensity transplant with residual disease. There is absolutely no way that that transplant is going to work. And yet, what if you don't have the opportunity to take the patient into a myeloablative transplant? So this is really setting a lot of interesting thinking right now about allotransplant. So this is a snarky slide. I was in a mood when I wrote 
wrote this, but so what is the best test? This question annoys me. I've already been asked this question 5,000 times in meetings since Tuesday, and it's, it's not a dumb question, but it's kind of a dumb question because all of these tests are good. They're all good, they're important, and they're getting better, and they actually may need to be used in a multimodality manner, which is annoying for regulators and annoying for clinicians, but deal with it because unfortunately these are here to stay. Should it be a multimodality assessment? Yes, what if they don't all show the same result? Well, Good luck with that, and that's welcome to clinic. That's kind of every day, but there will be the opportunity for a hierarchical interpretation of the results. If you have a core binding factor patient who is PCR negative, but somehow you are still detecting a FLT3 mutation, you're gonna go with the PCR of the core binding factor. This is complicated stuff, but it will be able to be interpreted hierarchically, and this is why people should, should maybe get additional opinions for some of their AML patients, because it's hard. At what point should they be measured? Definitely after induction and consolidation, and if transplant is under consideration, and I'm not positive you'll know what to do, but you should measure it. Does the timing depend on the regimen? Yeah, it does, and especially as we're using, for example, HMA and venetoclax-based uh, regimens for older patients, maybe it's not the right time to check after, after one month or two months. Maybe MRD doesn't even matter if if you're 80, we're not sure yet. Does the significance of MRD vary for different regimens and patient populations? Yes. Is it important? Yes. Should you measure it? Yes. Should you look at your own outcomes data for yourself at your institution so you start learning what MRD means in your hands? Yes. So here are my big problems. Just because we know how to detect MRD in AML and that the detectable MRD is bad news, that doesn't mean we know how to get rid of it. Don't just beat the hell out of the patient with 50 more cycles of chemotherapy trying to get rid of that 0.1%. It's not gonna work. That's your chemo-resistant population. And here, also, importantly and very disturbingly, MRD-positive patients don't always relapse. And MRD-negative patients aren't always or even mostly cured. And in AML, this drives us absolutely crazy. If you're MRD negative, it's not the fountain of youth. You're not living forever. And the problem is we don't know exactly how to identify those patients, which brings me back to my initial slide when I said that I was gonna convince you that it's important. Well, if you wanna fight me on it, here's your bullet point. Because the problem is if it's definitely important to check, why isn't this working out? So back to our patient, this is gonna be the patient that we talk about in our case, hopefully with some interesting discussion of the FLT3 um, ITD and NPM1 mutated patient who's in morphological CR. Is she really in CR and how would we measure it? And also, I'd like to call your attention to a few abstracts at ASH. So here, the idea is it's important and predictive um, uh, of relapse after stem cell transplant, not only before, but after. Here, CR is highly prognostic in patients with relapse refractory disease getting first salvage. So it's, this isn't necessarily only for newly diagnosed patients. Here we have patients up to age 70, risk-adapted post-remission allocation. This is the new age. How do you risk-adapt these patients? How do you adapt their therapy? There are a whole bunch of good things here, but look at this one, additional cytotoxic chemotherapy 
is unlikely to eliminate MRD. Don't do 23 cycles of HIDAC. This one is um, uh, different transplant regimens and how that compares to so TBI versus non-TBI-based regimens. And then over here is azacitidine as a preemptive treatment for MRD and MDS and AML at high risk of transplant. My personal favorite, because I'm the senior author on it, is Quasar, which is going to be presented as a late breaker on Tuesday, looking at um, at CC486, um, and, uh, the, which is going to be the new standard of care for maintenance therapy in AML. And there is probably an hour on MRD to talk about with that. Thank you very much for your attention. And I'm going to turn over to, the, uh, to my colleagues. Um, next is going to be a presentation on multiple myeloma, which I think is in slightly better shape than we are. Thank you.